Last week, I, I hammered pretty hard on pride. And uh, today, I want to reinforce that, but yet at the same time, uh, speak to pride's remedy. And I was told before the first service today, man, you really kind of stepped on our toes last Sunday, Adrian. And I didn't mean to hammer so hard, but pride really is the greatest sin. It's the first sin from which all of the others arise. And so we're spending a couple weeks talking about pride and today really speaking to the remedy of pride. But our hope in this series, One is Greater Than Seven, is not so much to focus on the sins themselves, not so much to focus on pride and sloth and lust and gluttony and all the rest, as much as it is to focus on the one who's able to grant us victory over those sins. Not so much to focus on our struggles and on our temptations as to focus on the one who provides remedies for those struggles and temptations that we can always provide a way out. God always provides a way out for us when we're under the weight of any struggle or any temptation. Again, last week we defined pride this way. It is an inward curvature. It looks so different in every person. But it's an inward curvature around self. It's the tendency to think too highly of self and to hide the true self while elevating a false self. Because we can't handle other people seeing the real self, we elevate something false to make ourselves feel superior to others. It's a, a complex issue. Again, sometimes it manifests itself in self-loathing, self-consciousness, self-sufficiency, self-reliance. Many different forms, it's this massive, tangled web. But its antidote, its remedy is really quite simple. Any guesses on what the one word remedy to pride would be? Humility, I heard from many. Humility. One single, simple word is really the remedy to our pride and our self-focus. It is humility. But is humility easy to find? It's anything but easy to find. I'd say the people that I've looked up to most in life have had this characteristic in common. They've been humble. But I haven't known very many genuinely humble people. For example, you watch that video of real-life metaphors of pride, and if I'm feeling kind of good about myself that I've never done that, I've fallen into pride. Now, it's good to get some chuckles from time to time, so I'm not making fun of anyone for getting chuckles. I certainly got them, too. But it's, it's elusive, isn't it? I once heard of a congregation who gave their pastor a medal for humility, and then he took it, the congregation took it away because the pastor wore it. <laughs> you know, true humility is not even aware of itself. Out of all of my great attributes, I must tell you, the greatest is humility. No, that just doesn't have much of a ring to it. We know that's wrong when we hear things like that. You can't be great at humility and be aware of it. Theologian Ray Steadman says, I learned long ago that when I hear some Christians say, I'm only trying to serve the Lord in my own humble way, 
that I'm probably talking to the proudest man in six counties. Humility is elusive. It really requires an off-the-spot kind of training. And so what I'd like to do is suggest a number of practical things that we can do that by themselves you wouldn't say, oh, that's not forcing myself to be humble. I don't, I don't get why this is helping me be humble. And that's because they're off-the-spot training exercise. And uh, much of the Christian life is disciplining ourselves. It's developing habits. It's developing, developing uh, patterns of behavior that lead us to act in a different way such that a new kind of character rises to the surface because we have disciplined ourselves in such a way with habits that actually change us over time. Part of the good news of the Christian life is we can change. Do you believe that? I really hope you believe that. Whatever struggle or temptation you feel today, we can change. And a big part of the way that we change is by changing our habits. And so, again, I'd like to suggest five practical habits that we can do that would diminish our pride and increase our humility. Here's the first. Enlarge your view of God and pride will be diminished. When people look at the greatness of God, pride is nowhere to be found. There are so many examples in the scriptures of men and women, great men and women, who have got a vision of God or some kind of experience with God, and their response is all just about the same. And on the back of your outline this morning, you'll see numerous passages that you might look up this week of so many different characters in the Bible who had a vision or had a dream or had some kind of experience with God, and you'll see their response, and you'll see this commonality. I encourage you to, to go through those different examples of people that had experiences with the living God, both in the Old and the New Testaments, and what their response was. But this morning, I'd like to identify three. You'll see these on the screen as I read them. The first one comes from Genesis 17, in which the great patriarch Abram, later named Abraham, encounters God. Listen to this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face because he recognizes in the presence of greatness someone so much greater than he is that his knees begin to tremble they lock and he falls on his face the prophet Isaiah testifies to something similar over in the book of Isaiah during the period of the first temple in the year that King I use in, in the year that King Uzziah, Uzziah, that's the king, Isaiah is the prophet, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds in the temple shook at the voice of him who called. 
and the house was filled with smoke. And here's Isaiah's response. He says, woe is me. I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So here's a very, very godly man who speaks for God. He's a prophet on behalf of God. And he gets this vision in which he experiences something that perhaps he's never experienced before, that he's in the very presence of the Lord. And when he does, he recognizes, oh, this is altogether different. Woe am I. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Lest we think this is just an Old Testament phenomenon, you flip over to the New Testament, or you might read this later on this week, Revelation chapter 1. The Apostle John, who was the dearest friend of Jesus, known as the beloved friend of Jesus, and he gets an experience of a vision of the resurrected and glorified Christ. And when he sees the glorified Christ in all of his radiance, he says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But... He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. What's the commonality in the response in each of those episodes? Someone witnessed the greatness of God, and they fell on their face. They fell down on their knees. They prostrated themselves before the holiness of God of God, recognizing that He is God and I am not. Now you have at the same time this beautiful portrait of Jesus putting His right hand, the hand of authority, on the Apostle John in this moment and saying, fear not, you can stand. You can be in my presence. You are forgiven now and forevermore. And that's what He says to every one of us today. I'm the first and the last and you can stand in my presence. But for my purpose here though this morning, I, I, I want to remind you that the demonstration of a person in the presence of God repeatedly across both Testaments goes something like this. I can't even stand. What, woe am I. My, my knees are knocking and I fell to the ground. Or here I am, bowed before you, God. You are totally other, and I don't belong in your presence. Oh, you would put your right hand on me, and you would allow me to stand? Uh, thank you, but it feels like I can't stand. Now, that's a posture of the heart that you may or may not physically do, but I might add that it helps us to go into that posture from time to time because it reminds us that God is God and we are not. And we fall upon our knees when we prostrate ourselves before the Lord. We remember that He is loving King. He is an affirming authority. And we remember this, that a proper view of God will always inspire awe. And a proper view of self always triggers humility. Be wary of preachers that you listen to on the radio or that you watch on TV who seem to testify to themselves and to Christ at the same time. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
You, you ever seen them on the television? I remember years ago I went to a church in Denver a couple times, and I was impressed with what I saw with the church and wanted to learn more about it, so I went on Google to learn more about it and typed in this church's name. But the funniest thing happened, I couldn't find any reference to that church. And that doesn't make any sense, because you can find anything on Google nowadays. And so I typed in some more and still couldn't find anything, and finally I typed in the pastor's name, and up pops this very glitzy website with his face plastered all over the website. And no longer was the URL, was the URL suchandsuchchurchministries.com, it was now suchandsuchpastorsname.com. Does that make your skin crawl like it does mine? And it should, because no one can testify to Christ and testify to self at the same time. Be very wary of any person who seems to be testifying to Christ in part and to self in part. Be wary of that. I'd like to suggest that those who do that do not have a large enough portrait of God. Enlarge your portrait of God. Again, by reading those passages that I noted, by bathing yourselves in the Gospels and really internalizing the character of Christ who reveals to us what God is like. Enlarge your portrait of God by going out into creation and experiencing the majesty of his creation, which triggers a sense of awe in us. Enlarge your capacity to worship God by falling upon your knees on a regular basis and just praying with hands outstretched or singing with hands outstretched, recognizing that he is God and we are not. As we enlarge our portrait of God, humility decreases. Likewise, we embrace a biblical view of submission to God. Now, many in our culture today, and indeed many in our churches today, view submission as kind of a dirty four-letter word. How dare you talk to me about submission? Do you know that I am all that? Now, we want to reclaim a biblical view of submission a biblical view of submission is that this is a beautiful word, this is a lovely word, and we are regularly to submit to one another out of love, and we are always to submit to God out of love. Stay with me on this. God made you very good. The Bible says God made you very good. He made you in his image, made you in his likeness, and he says that we're the pinnacle of his creation such that he allows us to be co-regents with him kind of co-creators, vice-regents who are responsible for taking care of all that he has made to kind of be rulers here on this earth underneath his dominion. Now even so, we have all fallen. We all have fallen into sin and we've done many, many things wrong, but God redeems us and he restores us and he forgives us and grants us new life and he gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit and he invites us to a life in the kingdom of God. He does all of that for us, saying, you matter greatly to God. He made you good. He restored you as good. But he never makes us to be gods. We are always to live under his reign, for he is a benevolent, benevolent master, and we submit to him. We noted last week that the center of Christian ethics is not any of these sins. The center of Christian ethics is a proper view of God and a proper view of of self. And as we grow in that proper view that, yeah, God made us good, but always to be in submission to him. 
always as lives under a great authority. I love the way the Apostle Paul put this. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, I do not preach myself, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and myself as your servants for the sake of Christ. Can I tell you that I pray that verse every single Sunday before I preach? Now, I've got to be careful about saying that, lest you think I'm very, very humble. Uh, but I pray that every single Sunday before I preach because that's my heart's desire. And I know that's true of the other pastors and this, this staff. We're never to preach ourselves. We're never to testify to self, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants under him. Practical value of submission for the sake of Christ. That's a proper view of God which inspires awe and a proper view of self. Paul says, I am not. How did John the Baptist put it when he spoke of Jesus? He said, he must increase, I must, I must decrease, he said. That again is a proper view of Christ, more of him, and a proper view of self. It really isn't about me. I love the way the great church father, St. Augustine, put it. He said, humility is knowing who God is and knowing who you are in light of God's mercy. It's not thinking of yourself in a lowly way. It's not thinking of yourself as a doormat, ready to be walked over by anyone. That's not humility. Indeed, humility can be very confident. Humility can be strong. Humility is oftentimes not even thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less often. Does that make sense? Now, there are some people with a grandiose head, and they need to think of themselves less. But many of us who don't apparently struggle with pride but still struggle with the different self-sins don't need to think less of ourselves. We merely need to think of ourselves less often. Even Jesus during his earthly ministry said things like, the words I say are not my own. I speak only what the Father gives me to say. I have come to do the Father's will. Now, was Jesus somehow small and weak because he submitted to the Father? By no means. There was total equality in the Godhead, but there was a functional subordination, a functional submission out of love. Submission is a loving action that we sometimes submit to one another and we always look to submit to God. And you got to know that God will bless that. Isaiah 66.3 says, This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. God will esteem you as you are humble and contrite before him, trembling before him. God esteems and blesses that. So also, James and Peter both say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God stands against those who are proud and totally self-reliant, who functionally need no, have no need of him. Some people live like functional atheists, I might add. God opposes that, but he gives grace to those who recognize that we are not self-sufficient, that we are needy of God, that we live beneath a loving Father and we are his benevolent, and, and he is benevolent to us, his children. Again, submission is no four-letter 
word. It's a blessed, beautiful word which helps us grow in humility and diminishes our pride. Third, we experience God as present in daily circumstances. And as we experience God as present in our daily, experience, in our daily circumstances, whatever our dailies may be, uh, humility grows and pride decreases. Let me explain. Uh, do you believe God is, is here right now? Do you? Do you believe God is with you tomorrow in your cubicle? Or on the tractor if it dries out? Do you believe God is present with you when you're bickering with your wife or with your husband? Do you believe that God is present with you when you are surfing the internet? Is he present in those things? As we recognize the very presence of God in each of our daily circumstances, all of the deadly sins fall down. Because when we recognize that God is with us, we do not want to engage in the actions that we otherwise would wish to engage in. When I recognize that God is present with me when I get on the internet, I am not quite as inclined to do things that I otherwise might be inclined to do. To get real frank. When I recognize that God is present with me, there's no room for me to posture in front of anyone else because he is God and I am not. We recognize the very presence of God with us wherever we go. Now, here's one of the the greatest ways, though, that we can recognize the presence of God throughout each day. We can say these simple breath prayers. Here's a simple breath prayer that I say, and the beauty of it is you can do this while you're doing something else. So you can mow the lawn, and you can simultaneously say these breath prayers while you're mowing the lawn. And the breath prayer is just as simple as this. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I'll sometimes say that 25 or 30 times per day because I need to be reminded throughout the day that Lord Jesus is actually with me and he can give me mercy in the midst of my weaknesses. Or you might substitute other words. Lord Jesus Christ, grant me peace in my anxiety. Lord Jesus Christ, remind me of your presence right now. And these are simple prayers that you can do over and over again which are just pregnant with meaning Because they remind us that God is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and I am not. That he is present with me and he's able to give mercy at our time of need right now. Lord Jesus Christ, grant me mercy. You can do that in almost any activity, though, that you do. And some might say, well, to do it 25 or 30 times, Adrian, that kind of seems like vain repetition. But it disciplines a a habit. It's not vain repetition if it disciplines a habit. It's meaningful repetition. Again, we want to develop habits, develop disciplines that change the way we think because that then changes our character. And as we know that Jesus is present no matter where we are, humility increases and pride has no place. Now, all of these focus on the vertical line between us and God, how we're to relate to him in order to grow our humility and diminish our pride. But I want to give one also here this morning that speaks to the horizontal plane, how we can relate to each other and thereby grow in humility. And it's challenging. It goes like this. Expose yourself to a couple friends who can handle the real you. Guys, I just said expose yourself to a couple friends. 
All the men right now are looking for the exits, twitching in their seats. I mean, we don't want to do this, do we? The last thing I want to do is expose my areas of weakness to someone else. But there's a certain power in admitting I struggle in this area. And a gentler way of saying that is I need help with something. Can I, can I tell you an area that I'm struggling? Can I be really specific with you? And would you pray with me? Uh, last Sunday, I, I shared in this room that I can struggle with this need for approval. And I put on this dorky mask. Remember that? This Captain America mask to suggest that sometimes I will try to be something more than I actually am to seek your approval. And I sat down with a friend here at church this past week, and we talked through that, and he said, you know, Adrian, you seem like a pretty self-confident person. You seem to be uh, pretty self-aware, and uh, is that really something that you struggle with? And I had to share with this man that while I sometimes still struggle with this, and it still is a danger, it still is a temptation, that used to be a great temptation for me, to look for the approval of people. And I felt a little bit embarrassed. I started to sweat a little bit as I was communicating this, but I said, this is someone though that I trust, and so I'm just going to share this with him, and I trust that he will pray with me through this, and he will help keep me accountable. And uh, that helped to share it. It felt awkward in the moment as I was sharing, but it actually helped to articulate something that I used to struggle with a ton, and if I'm not careful about, I still can struggle with today. So at least one person here in Kearney knows the real me, and 700 of you as well. <laughs> and you might say to that, well, Adrian, that's fine and well, but you're a pastor. You're paid to do that. You cannot pay me enough to do that. Or that doesn't count. You're supposed to do that. No, it does count. That's hard for me too. That's incredibly difficult to be honest with real struggles and say, would you help me out with this? Would you pray with me about this? But it just has a certain power to reduce that which you fear and reduce that area of sin and struggle. When you bring it out into the open, it holds less sway in our heart. We're able to diffuse some of its power by simply bringing it out into the open. Now, it, let me just speak to all the fellows in the room, all the men in the room. I, I, I know the men in the room right now. You, you hear that and you say, I, I don't want to do that. Because we are taught as men to always have it together. To pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to be self-made men who do not struggle, and to admit that I struggle, to admit that I have an area of weakness, is tantamount for many men to failure. And I just want to urge you men, not as your pastor, but as your brother, just your brother speaking here, from the bottom of my heart, brother to brother, let me just urge you, don't go there. Because if you live that way, you don't bring it out into the open with at least a couple other guys all kinds of dangerous and awful things can happen in our hearts. When we live in hiding, it does awful things to our marriages. Have you noticed certain people, maybe you've had experience with someone, a couple, that seem like they are just fine in their marriage for 10 years, 
and you're friends or acquaintances with them, and then all of a sudden, in year 11, they're divorcing each other. Have you seen that? And you, you had no idea that there was any struggle? Why was that? It's because they chose their pride over bringing things out into the open. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. It's people choosing, I would rather have the pride of acting like I have my stuff together than allow a couple other guys to come into my world and know that I'm actually struggling in these areas. It is exceedingly dangerous to live in hiding. But as we bring our stuff out to the open, as we expose ourselves a little bit to a couple other trusted people, then we can find help. Choose your marriage over your pride. Can I get an amen, please? Choose your marriage over your pride. Choose the health of your kids over your pride. Choose integrity over your pride. Choose honesty over your pride. Choose authenticity before the one who alone is God over pride. God has designed us to live this way that we actually need a few other people to really know the real us. And if we have it, we are so frequently much more healthy than if we don't. Let me get off my soapbox now. Seriously, please consider this. If you're looking for an application from this message and you would say, I am living in solitude. Um, my stuff is not exposed to anyone. See that as a danger sign and bring it out into the open with a couple other men and real men, real friends, real life groups, real women will not judge. They'll help you work through it. Finally, expose yourself to God. Expose the real you to the real God. Tell God, I need forgiveness. And God sees it all and how liberating it is to know that he receives us just as we are and he will grant us forgiveness each and every time. And we come to the communion table this morning. And as we come to the communion table, we remember that he grants us real forgiveness for real sins done in the body by real people like us last week. So I urge you, don't be vague as we come to the communion table. Be specific. Tell God honestly where you're struggling. Ask for his forgiveness. Ask for his help. And I promise you, he will give it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how grateful we are that you receive us as we are. And so we come to you with authenticity, asking that you would forgive us of all our sins. We take just a moment of silence right now. And in this moment of silence, we present ourselves to you as we are. Humble us, Lord Jesus. And now would you forgive us? Father, we thank you for the promise that you grant mercy to those who fall upon you. You grant grace and help 
in our time of need. So would you forgive us and cleanse us, grant us a fresh start, and help us to start afresh today, knowing that we are yours, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We belong to you, and nothing will change that. How grateful we are for your love. We celebrate that now. In Jesus' name, amen.